0: Welcome to the Digital Tattoo Podcast. This is the second of two episodes that explore copyright and open access. But before we dive into those topics, I'd like to stop for a moment and consider the name of the show and a central question that I left hanging last time. So what's a digital tattoo? Well, it seems like a metaphor for something virtual making an impression on something physical. And for this to happen, something remarkable must also happen. Normally, There's a boundary between the real and the imagined. The metaphor of the digital tattoo suggests the transgression of this boundary. And that's what the Digital Tattoo Project is all about. We're constantly interrogating the ways that this boundary is being crossed. But in thinking about Aaron Schwartz, I don't think that our metaphor works particularly well. Last time, we heard the story of Aaron Schwartz, a computer prodigy with a different value system than most of us he turned his back on commercial success and focused on community activism. For one reason or another, he decided to download millions of articles from JSTOR through MIT's Open Network. A United States federal prosecutor aggressively charged Aaron with computer crimes. Aaron Schwartz took his own life at the age of 26 while facing up to 35 years in prison and a fine of up to a million dollars. And I asked this question, What possibly could have motivated Aaron Schwartz to take the actions that he did? But I couldn't provide an answer. This week, we'll consider if, for people like Aaron Schwartz, the direction of influence from our digital tattoo metaphor has been reversed. Perhaps for Aaron Schwartz and others like him, they're enmeshed in an understanding of the internet as something that moves in another direction, from the real to the imagined, rejecting and subverting our metaphor of the digital tattoo. Over the course of this episode, I hope to draw a conclusion, albeit not a definitive one, about why Aaron Schwartz took the actions that he did. Alright, so that's nearly enough from me. Luckily, this episode also features interviews from five people working in copyright and open access in Canada. I spoke with the student editors of the University of Toronto's Medical Journal, which is entirely open access. I talked to a Canadian lawyer who specializes in intellectual property law. We'll learn more about open access from the public lead of Creative Commons Canada. And I also spoke with the head of copyright and scholarly communications for the University of Toronto Libraries. But first, let's join Margot and Victoria on campus at the University of Toronto to find out what students know about open access.
1: What do you think of when you hear the words open access?
2: Okay, when I hear open access, I think it's something that you get for free or you have really uh, a really easy access to. What do you think of when you hear open access?
3: Just free information, basically just like the ability to access information and not have to worry about dropping a small fortune. <laughs> what do you think about when you hear open access?
2: Um, pretty much free the public like journals, articles, websites, just information available for anybody to use regardless of you know where they're going to school, where they live, how much money they have, just information being available.
0: It's interesting to consider that what comes to mind first when asked about open access is free. While this is true, it's also indicative of the opposite of free which is, for lack of a single word, costs money. I wonder what this says about our attitudes towards intellectual property. Why do we associate something that's open as something that's also free? Likewise, how did we come to believe that everything must have a price? Let's talk with Alex and Bridge. They're both medical students at the University of Toronto and the editors of its Open Access Medical Journal. Uh, in, In each of your own words, what is open access? What does it mean to you? Um, I think open access. This is British speaking.
4: In in how I understand it and how I view it is basically the accessibility of information um, that uh, is available um, through research, regardless of in- institutional access or affiliation. If it's
1: available publicly, I think that's what um, I regard as open access. Yeah, and for me, from a more uh, philosophical standpoint, I really think of open access.
0: And this is Alex.
1: As uh, equal access to opportunity as it pertains to knowledge and scholarly information, obviously, um, in the context that we're talking about in terms of research. And, and uh, I think open access is just a, a fantastic way to make research move more quickly more effectively in a more open environment. It's less uh, predatorial.
0: So, throughout your undergraduate career, this is going to be kind of like a, a weird question. How, how many papers do you think you looked at, research papers?
1: Oh, uh,
4: I think uh, it's hard to um, put, put a number on H- it. but Hundreds, I think, perhaps? Oh yeah, yeah. easily, easily. If, um, not no, if not thousands, yeah, for sure.
0: And what would be the cost if you weren't affiliated with a university and, and had access to these? Do you, can you speculate on what the cost might be to access, you know, the thousands of, of research paper?
4: I would say, um, if I was to estimate, I think ten percent of the papers that I looked at, um, maybe ten to fifteen percent, were completely, you know, open access. Um, the others I would have had to pay if I wasn't affi- affiliated with an institution.
0: Now, I don't want you guys to incriminate yourselves here, but I know a lot of people are accessing academic papers through uh, illegal portals. I think there's a pretty big one um, out there that you guys might know the name of. It's escaping me right now. But do you know of people who are using this, who are affiliated with the universities, but just find it easier to, to sort of access these uh, academic documents through um, these illegal portals?
4: Um, I have heard um, of, of a couple of sources, but, um, you know, I haven't I haven't looked um, too deeply into it because I haven't had to. Uh, but I think, you know, if if there came a point in my career where you know I was really having a hard time finding papers that are open access for me, even with um, academic in, 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 um, affiliation, I think it's still it would you know I wouldn't um, I wouldn't think too much of it. I would still you know see what I can find, and I would definitely um, look into it. Yeah.
1: Um, and, you know, for me, kind of kind of similar. I, I don't know too many people who um, who have had to resort to that. Mostly because you know, I'm surrounded by med students and university students most of the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you know, given how rampant illegal streaming of movies and TV shows are, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it, uh, mm-hmm. the numbers are are
0: are surprisingly high. Yeah. Um, what in your minds? would happen if all scientific knowledge was just closed off, if it was all paywalls for everybody? like What, what are the implications of that scenario?
4: I think it, it's a huge barrier. Even if you want to look up at least the smallest piece of information and you need that critical piece of information for your research to go on and for you to produce something that's meaningful to the scientific uh, literature it would require um, you to look at evidence in the past. And if that evidence is, is withheld, there's really a, a huge barrier to, to advance of, advancement of scientific um,
1: research and scientific understanding in general. Yeah, I think uh, Bridge brings up a great point. Like um, science and re- scientific research is all about building on the current state of knowledge. And if you're literally unable to assess the current state of knowledge, it's kind of impossible to, to build on it.
0: Uh, how do you see open access in Canada changing over the next ten years?
1: That's a great question, and um, it's really it's tough to say, given uh, that publication costs are uh, are just as high, if not higher, than ever. Um, in our case, um, you know, even though we have a talented team that's fully volunteer-based, um, I don't think we added that earlier. Mm-hmm. We do. We spend uh, thousands of dollars every year publishing both in print and online. So uh, I think that uh, that kind of refers back to the problem we were earlier alluding to. And uh, journals are going to have to find ways to cut costs if they want to continue following the trend and pushing towards open access in academia. Um, so finances are really going to be the greatest barrier. Um,
0: so so this is my last question. And we asked the student, this, this question to students at U of T. Um, so we'd hope that you guys could weigh in here. Do you feel that Canadians have a global obligation to produce open access content?
1: I think we do have, to some extent, an ethical obligation. I think it really um, it really fits the Canadian ethos of uh, you know openness and inclusion.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree wholeheartedly with what Alex said, and um, I think it's. It's not just you know at UFT. I think anywhere where um, there is research being done, I think everyone has some sort of commitment. Uh, should have some sort of commitment to uh, open access to making their data or or their published work um, open to to anyone who wants to use it.
1: Yeah, and no, I mean education is obviously also extremely important. And uh, I think that um, especially you know young researchers who are trying to uh, make their stamp in the research world, if they're going to be able to reap the benefits. Um, of open access. And I think that they'll really be able to appreciate, um, uh, appreciate how important it is. And I do think that as they, become, they advance in their research careers, they'll recognize its importance and they'll be able to uh, pay it forward, so to speak.
0: So open access is a thing, an important thing. And according to Brej and Alex, this method of publishing and sharing research can push science and the arts forward. But are students taking advantage of these resources? Let's check in with Victoria and Margot to find out. Have you taken advantage of open online learning in general? Uh,
2: Really, no. I don't take advantage of that and I don't know
3: much about it, so... Um, Have you explored any of the open access initiatives at your institution? I have not. Um, Do you know about U of T's online access portals? Only a few of them were mentioned in passing, um, but I've never actually checked any of them out. Um, Have you explored any of the open access initiatives at your institution? No. (laughs) Um, Did you know that U of T actually has open access
0: portals?
2: I have heard of them. Professors have mentioned them, and I've been like, that's a thing that
0: exists. So we're going to pivot here and talk with a lawyer who defends the intellectual property of creators against copyright infringement. It's important to note that she isn't responding to or arguing against open access, but to a cultural shift that has changed our attitudes towards the theft of copyrighted materials over the Internet. This is something that Alex and Bridge noted that the prevalence of the open access revolution has run parallel to, and perhaps been conflated with, the act of piracy. Christine Hirschfield has practiced business law for about 30 years, specializing in intellectual property for 20, and provides great insight into how internet culture has acted to legitimize some forms of theft. She's acted for film and television producers, actors and writers. Her practice also expands into the computer software field in addition to biotech. She describes a scenario that, for me, perfectly articulates how attitudes towards theft vary between contexts. We're going to jump right into her answer because I kind of stumbled on the question.
2: I have a friend, uh, not a client in this instance, but a friend who was telling me that when he was growing up, uh, his parents were in the retail business and they'd go for drives Sunday afternoons, as many families do. And sometimes they'd drive to the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia, and there are a lot of apple orchards in the valley. And he commented that his father would stop the car and tell him and his brother to get out and, you know, go pick some apples and come back. But they weren't paying for the apples. And my comment to him was, well, I hope that your parents allowed the farmer's children to come into the city and just take things off the shelves in the store run by his parents, because to me it's the same thing. You know, your stock and trade is your stock and trade. So those are two examples of taking something physical, you know, taking something off a shelf in a grocery store or taking fruit off the trees in an orchard. But to my mind, it's the same thing when you go online, for example, and take intellectual property. You, you take something that is protected, even though you can't touch and feel it, it's protected by intellectual property laws, and it was created by somebody. They put their energy and effort into it, and they own it. And if you like it, you should be paying for it.
0: So over the course of your career, how have attitudes towards the value of intellectual property changed?
2: Uh, uh, that's a great question and it's a very interesting way of putting it. I've been practicing for about 30 years. When I went through law school at Dalhousie, they did not have any courses on intellectual property. So. Attitudes about intellectual property have changed in that people at least now acknowledge that it exists. When I went through law school, nobody talked about it. You know, of course, we knew there was copyright and trademark and patents, but we weren't being educated about it. Mm-hmm. And certainly, if I were to talk to the average person 30 years ago, they wouldn't understand what it was I was talking to or talking about, probably. Um, there has been over I don't know, the past 15 years, I suppose, an increasingly loose attitude about what it is that you are taking if you take something that's protected by intellectual property. So people, for the most part, have some inkling about copyright protection, for example, but they don't really seem to understand that the artist who creates a, a painting or the musician who records an uh, an album owns the rights in it and deserves to be compensated. They don't seem to accept that.
0: And why do you, why, do you, why do you think these attitudes have, have attitudes changed over over I, time?
2: I think, in large part, it's because everything's so easily available now. The internet has made it so everything is so accessible you can go online you can find just about anything and you can download it and and watch it there is an increasing attitude amongst the general public that um you know for example they should be allowed to watch whatever movie they want whenever they want to they should be able to watch whatever television show listen to whatever music and they should not have to pay for it
0: um and what's the impact on artists and creators when people just go out and take and they don't pay for it
2: well it's one of the struggles that artists are having is trying to figure out how to be compensated in a changing world. And when people can figure that out, if, if technology did not change in the interim, if someone could figure that out they'd be doing extremely well. But if you just go with a traditional model, if I were a musician and I were recording albums and trying to sell them in record stores which don't even exist anymore, I'd be I'd be out of business before I was even in business. So the impact that it has on artists quite often can be very devastating. Someone can pour their heart and soul into something and think they're going to be able to sell it, make some money doing this, compensate themselves for the lost time and investment. And if it's being distributed for free, then they're not going to recoup.
0: So what do you think needs to happen then in Canada for people to start respecting intellectual property?
2: Is it a legal change?
0: Is it an attitude change? Is it education? I think it's
2: an attitude. It's an attitude change, and it's an education change. People, it, it goes back to compensating those who are creating intellectual property. Mm-hmm. We, I've had this conversation with people from time to time, and it doesn't seem to go well on, as far <laughs> as I can tell. But if you're listening to a piece of music, and if you like the band, and if you want them to continue recording, for heaven's sake, support them. Mm -hmm. You know, going out there and downloading their music for free is not helping that band and it won't help them move their careers forward. And it's all well and good to say that you don't want to support the big business that's behind the recording industry. But at the end of the day, the musicians have to make some money. And that applies not just to musicians, it applies to photographers and graphic designers and Anybody who is creating anything that's protected by intellectual property. If you like their work, find a way to support them.
0: These are great points. If we want to continue enjoying all these things, then their creators do need to be compensated in some way. Let's turn back to open access again. I made a promise at the beginning of the show that by the end we'd understand a little bit more about why Aaron Schwartz took the actions that he did. In the second chapter of his book, Hackers, Stephen Levy explores the hacker ethic. The ideology of open access to information is something shared by academics and hackers. And the basic premise is very simple. All information should be free. But how does this ethic function in a capitalist economy? It seems like there's a tension between the hacker ethic and capitalism. If you don't have access to the information you need to improve things, writes Levy, how can you fix them? A free exchange of information, particularly when the information was in the form of a computer program, allowed for greater overall creativity, he writes. This falls into another rule of Levy's hacker ethic, to mistrust authority and promote decentralization. Here again, the hacker ethic is suggesting not just a move away from capitalism, but away from the institutions of our government. The best way to promote this free exchange of information, writes Levy, is to have an open system, something that presents no boundaries between a hacker and a piece of information. The opposite of an open system is a bureaucracy, whether corporate, government, or university, he writes. They are flawed systems dangerous in that they cannot accommodate the exploratory impulse of true hackers. Schwartz found himself in all the institutions that are antithetical to the hacker ethic, as Levy describes it. He wasn't content at university, he quickly left the corporate world and found its culture to be confining, and ultimately found himself entrapped by what could be argued were the arbitrary rules of government. Ultimately, Schwartz was an embodiment of the hacker ethic and lived his life by its code. Rules were obstacles to the progress that he envisioned for the world. According to the terms of the hacker ethic, Schwartz's crimes can be understood as an attempt to decentralize the control of information, and nothing more. After all, all information should be free. The rules that led to Schwartz's death were created to consolidate power. In this way, his suicide can be understood as a symbolic act the unfortunate outcome of a creative mind being persecuted by a closed system, a system that was unwilling to condone acts that transgressed how their power is situated and maintained. Another rule of the hacker ethic, hackers should be judged by their hacking, not bogus criteria such as degrees, age, race, or position. This helps us to understand how a teenage Schwartz was able to begin working on developing the first Creative Commons license with Lawrence Lessig. Levy closes his chapter on the hacking ethic like this. Everyone could gain something by the use of thinking computers in an intellectually automated world. And wouldn't everyone benefit even more by approaching the world with the same inquisitive intensity, skepticism towards bureaucracy, openness to creativity, unselfishness in sharing accomplishments, urge to make improvements, and desire to build as those who followed the hacker ethic. Ironically, this ethic was born in the confines of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the very same place where Schwartz ran an automated program to download the millions of articles from JSTOR. At one time, writes Levy of MIT, it was a place where people had the freedom to live out this dream. The hacker dream. We're going to close the show with our final interview. Unfortunately, the Head of Scholarly Communications and Copyright at the University of Toronto Libraries had to cancel our interview, which I promised to you earlier. There does seem to be a bit of a culture of silence with librarians and university staff members when it comes to discussing copyright. As I alluded to last time, we're undergoing some pretty seismic shifts in how copyright is understood in Canada. Hopefully we'll be able to reschedule that interview and feature it on the next show. If not, that will mark the fourth university official who is unable or unwilling to speak with me about the issue. But to give us a bit more information about those major changes to copyright, I spoke on the phone with the public lead of Creative Commons Canada, Kelsey Merkley, while she was attending an open educational resource conference in Anaheim. Hi,
3: uh, my name's Kelsey Merkley. I am the public lead for Creative Commons Canada.
0: And what is Creative Commons Canada? Uh, Creative
3: Commons Canada is an affiliate chapter uh, from Creative Commons. Uh, Creative Commons is a global movement uh, that's designed to shape and challenge um, opportunities uh,
0: to allow creators uh, to share their work more openly. And so a, a lot's happening in Canada right now around copyright. Um, how is uh, open access and Creative Commons licensing affecting those, those changes?
3: Yeah, I think so. A lot of the work that we do with Creative Commons is to help advocate for sensible copyright reform. We've got a couple of major things happening right now. Uh, one is around our legislative uh, required copyright reform uh, that we understand to be happening uh, later this fall, where Canada is legally bound to review its copyright every five years. So this is the fifth year. Uh, so we are busy investing that uh, just for fun and games. They also decided to add Uh, NAFTA in, Uh, add some fun challenges to that. Uh, We very strongly believe that anything to do with uh, intellectual property does not belong in a trade agreement. Uh, Trade agreements do not move at the speed of internet and copyright reform law at its best does not move at the speed of internet. So we are advocating uh, very hard for Canada to maintain uh, its uh, sensible uh, copyright uh, laws. Uh, and then we have um some court cases uh the court case happening with fair dealing um on the education exception uh in Canada and whether or not uh universities are allowed to see that, use that to their full benefit
0: and and how does um the creative commons licensing relate to open access in academia
3: yeah yeah open access is another uh piece that we are uh really involved in um i think we uh, we're one of the early signers uh, of the open access initiative. Many of our members uh, believe really strongly in that. Canada has uh, the tri-council agency uh, support of open access, um, that supports an open access policy um, that does ask for researchers when funded uh, through the Canadian government to release their stuff openly. Um, it's not the tightest of policies um, and it's one of my missions to try to help make that stronger mm-hmm. um, and to help push um, the government to enforce some of those. It's a really tricky situation because librarians are not in the position where they want to be enforcers, nor should they be. Uh, researchers want to get their work um, published in the, uh, because their jobs are dependent on it, they want their work published um, in reputable, high ranking journals. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think globally we're seeing big, substantive shifts. Uh, in the open access movement with girl, uh, funders like the Gates Foundation and Ford uh, and Hewlett all requiring open access uh, uh, CC by license and immediately openly available um, works.
0: Is Creative Commons, the licensing system, a response to the fact that information was kind of being put behind paywalls and inac- public knowledge or knowledge in general was inaccessible to the public? Um, what what was sort of so, the genesis, cre- the origin of, of Creative Commons?
3: Yeah. Uh, so Creative Commons actually came about um, because we, uh, and it's funny because I'm uh, two blocks from Disneyland right now. Um, <laughs> the reason why Creative Commons exists is, is uh, part of uh, um, the US case law uh, where our founder, Larry Lustig, um, was fighting uh, the, it's commonly known as the Mickey Mouse IP bot, the Sonny Bono uh, Copyright Act, um, which were where they were. Um, increasing the copyright um, author's extension from 50 years to 70 years uh, past author's death. Um, and they, in the court case, um, it looked like they were not going to do well and someone challenged to start something um, that would allow creators to have a choice uh, outside of that that they may want to share sooner rather than later. Um, so that is the genesis of Creative Commons and the licenses. We've been around uh, for a while now. We have one point two billion works that are listed under a Creative Commons license. Worldwide.
0: Wow. It's quite a mm-hmm. quite a quite a journey. Um, and Yeah. So uh, of course
3: you spoke about Aaron. You want me to talk about Aaron?
0: Yeah, if if you if you could, because um, yeah that's he's sort of what's propelling our sort of discussion so far because <laughs> his story is so captivating. And I mean it's it's so tragic too because he he was like unfairly and unjustly um, Persecuted for what seems to me to be political reasons
3: Yeah, it's, I mean his story is a, a tragic one and I can't um, his Motivations, mm-hmm. um, but knowing his work um, it, it doesn't it didn't look like what he was trying to do was to trying to steal all of the um, Journal articles and release them for free. It looked like Aaron was actually an incredibly powerful data scientist It looked like he was trying to draw connections mm-hmm. um, and pull and Mine it for data. Um, but that's uh, so of course not what you're charged with, and of course not how the US government cho- chose to see it. Um, I think there's some really interesting things happening um, with uh, open access journals right now, it's maybe in um, response to Aaron's, is uh, the group Sci Hub, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, which is uh, an active pirate online sites that uh, has been uh, sued for gajillions of dollars uh, they are in hiding somewhere in eastern europe uh their websites are constantly getting shut down and they are still one of the most referenced sites uh for academic journals worldwide and a lot of people say that it's because um uh, people in the global south um, aren't able to afford the journals, but actually the research that's been done shows that those journals, that people are referencing are accessing CYHEDs uh, at greater numbers in North American institutions. Uh, so the need for access to journal articles is great. Libraries are under constant pressure and constant budget funding. They simply can't afford the increased costs of journal articles. Uh, we're looking for i think it would be great to see one of the major players uh like harvard uh step up and say we're just not going to pay for these journal articles anymore we don't have access uh in the ways that we used to anymore because of obscene obscene journal prices
0: and what would happen if harvard were to say that
3: well i think we'd like we'd start to see the shift right if harvard said we're not going to do this anymore we're only going to go open access um we're going to require all of our um but we'll, we'll make all of our journals open access and we will make um, all of our researchers publish under open access. That's a game changer. Those are things that we want done. Okay. Um, I think we're, we're closer now than we have ever been before uh, in open access. I think we are like a couple of years away from seeing a
0: real active shift in it. You sort of premeditated my next question there because I was going to ask you, <laughs> where, yeah, where do you see open access and creative commons licensing in, in five years from now?
3: I'm still so always like I am kind of just baffled by this notion that there that that we still need to be talking about it. Um I I am always uh perplexed by this idea that we would want to put knowledge in any way uh where someone couldn't reach it. Um any scientists uh, mandate is to get their work out as freely and widely available as possible. One of my favorite quotes I just want to say, uh, and is um it, oh, it gets me uh teary whenever i or whenever I need to be inspired, and I wonder what I am doing uh, the work that I'm doing in the world. Um I always watch the Internet own boy, um, and at the very end, um, when Aaron they talk about how Aaron used to always say, uh, what is the one thing you could be doing to change the world? Uh, and if you're not doing it, why not? <laughs> um, that <laughs> That is a thing that motivates me uh, all the time.
0: This episode of the Digital Tattoo Podcast was produced and hosted by me, Brian Short, with contributions from Victoria McCauley and Margot Smith. I want to thank our guests from this episode, Alex and Brig from the UTMJ, Christine Hirschfield from Bonnet Clark, and Kelsey Merkley from Creative Commons Canada. I also want to thank Michael Geis from the University of Ottawa for being on the last show. This episode featured music by Lee Rosevear. We're going to close with a clip from the movie about Aaron Schwartz that Kelsey mentioned. The internet's own boy. Thanks for listening. All over the world there were starting to be hackathons and gatherings. Aaron Schwartz has in some sense brought the best out of us in trying to say, how do we fix this? He was, in my humble opinion, one of the true, extraordinary revolutionaries that this country has produced. I don't know whether Aaron was defeated or victorious, uh, but we are certainly shaped by the hand uh, of the things that he wrestled with when we turn armed agents of the law on citizens trying to increase access to knowledge, we've broken the rule of law, we've desecrated the temple of justice. Aaron Swartz was not a criminal. Change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, it comes through continuous struggle.
3: Aaron really could do magic and I'm dedicated to making sure that his magic doesn't end with his death. He believed that he could change the world, and he was right. Out of the last week and out of today, Phoenixes are already rising.
1: Since Schwartz's
3: death, Representative Zoe Lofgren and Senator Ron Wyden have introduced legislation that would reform the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the outdated law that formed the majority of the charges against Schwartz. It's called Aaron's Law. Aaron believed that, like, you literally ought to be asking yourself all of the time, what is the most important thing I could be working on in the world right now? And if you're not working on that, why aren't you?